Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we'll concentrate on surely one of the more unique South Africans of the 18th century, whose descendants feature as a small independent people in modern South Africa, and who found themselves stuck in a British concentration camp in the northern Transvaal town of Petersburg in 1901. I was going to return to General Smuts this week, but he's still meeting with rebels in the far northern Cape in the uh, first week of February. So now it's all about Conrad de Beus and his long, strange journey through South Africa and how he and his vast family ended up close to the Limpopo River, far away from the Cape Colony. Petersburg was the northernmost concentration camp in the Transvaal system during the Boer War, isolated and difficult to access, with the road constantly under threat by Boers. By May 1901, the frontier territory was under threat from various directions. The British had secured the town, but Boer commandos continued raiding the region. Insecurity was rife. African societies around the town had never been fully subdued by the Boers when they expanded northwards from the Cape in the 1830s. The frontier area was considered a lawless region and few British troops operated there except for the notorious Bushveld Carboneers, who we've heard about already, remember the Breaker Morant saga. Yet, one of the families living here were the Du Bois people, whose origin dated back to the 1700s. Now they were based near Sotensburg to the north and were regarded as what at the time was called the in-between people. In other words, somewhat black, somewhat white, not quite coloured. That sounds mysterious, and the Du Bois people are enigmas. I need to explain, as their provenance is somewhat extraordinary and probably needs a Netflix series to do it justice. The Du Bois people are descendants of a Cape Colonial Boer renegade called Kunrad Du Bois, who escaped from British rule in the late 18th century. You'll see why I need to go back that far in a moment. As with things South African, the story is not one of black and white. It has shades of pink, champagne, salmon, brown, mustard, burnt umber, chocolate and cocoa brown. Not to mention khaki and smoky topaz. There are many shades of black and white, particularly when you realise the story of South Africa is actually a story of pink and brown. This tale also has shades of surprise for most who don't know about Mr. Du Bois and his adventures. So Kunrad de Bois was born in the Cape Colony in 1761. By the time he was in his late teens, travellers described him with fear and awe. He was a giant by the standards of the day, around seven foot tall, and needless to say, brimming with self-confidence. By the early 1780s, Kunrad de Bois had moved to a farm near the Bushman's River in what was known as the Zuurveld, which is the sour grass region of the southeastern Cape. The British had seized control of the colony, something that irked the independent-minded Boer. He would travel a long road to stay away from the British from then on. Du Bois lived on the farm with his wife, a Khoikhoi woman called Maria van der Horst, who was an ex-slave. They had seven children together. By the standards of the day, this was unusual but not unique, although apartheid historians and modern African nationalist historians seem to find it difficult to understand this fact through the blurred lenses of warped historiography. But I digress. Du Bois often crossed the Fish River and raided cattle from the Isikosa and eventually Chief Langa, who lived near the Bushman's River, ran out of patience, accusing Du Bois of seizing his wife, who then became his concubine. Two other chiefs echoed Chief Langa's complaints, 
also accusing Debase of seizing their wives and their cattle. The British were still trying to placate the East Cause at times, and they were trying to figure out what to do about the troublesome Eastern Cape area and the troublesome Debose. They then tried to capture Coonrod. In response, Debose fled his settled life with Maria and their children by himself and headed off to live in the homestead of Chief Ingrika, well beyond the colonial border, where he became part of the family in more ways than one. Simply put, he became the lover of Ingrika's mother, Yese. He was the wife of Mlawu Kararabi. Chief Ngrika didn't appear to mind, and Debose became Ngrika's main advisor, particularly as he came under pressure from the expanding British who were eyeing Eastern Cape Territory. Debose then took an Amatembu wife who was listed with the name Elizabeth, and they lived together for the rest of their lives, having many children and later trekking as far as the Limpopo River on the Zimbabwean border. That is a long way from the area near Stutterheim and Komcha in the Eastern Cape. From 1799 onwards, Rarabi Chief Ngrika's great place of main residence was actually shared by the man the chief called Kula, who was Kunrad de Bose. The great place was situated in the Tumi River Valley just south of Hogsback, a picturesque mountain village in the Eastern Cape, much beloved of artists and visited by J.R.R. Tolkien. Just out of interest, it thought the misty mountains and ancient and alien-looking fern forests there had a direct bearing on Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings. But back to the early 1800s, when Debose became a target for the British and the subject of many fireside tales, as he began fighting for the Isikosa against the British. He was mentioned many times in colonial documents of this period. It is also interesting to note that the Rarabi clan of the Isikosa held out against colonial invaders for more than a century, longer than virtually any other Southern African anti-colonial resistance. By 1812, Kunrad was living in the Stoddenbach region near George in the southeastern Cape, and after being accused of a murder, fled northwards. Eventually, in 1820, he and his Amatembu wife Elizabeth, and by now their many children, moved to the region of the Mariko River, then migrated further northwards into the Limpopo Valley. The Tsonga and Afro-Portuguese in the valley could supply him with gunpowder in exchange for ivory, and the Du Bois family settled above the Tsetse Fly and Malaria Belt in the Tswapong Hills east of Palapai in what is eastern Botswana today. Unfortunately, during the trip, Elizabeth contracted yellow fever and eventually died where they had finally settled in 1821. Du Bois was shattered by her death and immediately decided to take a last journey to Mozambique. He told his sons and their families to wait for him at the Limpopo River, then left. He was never seen again. It is believed that he died shortly after crossing the river, but Kunrad de Bose remains were never found. But he did leave behind an enormous number of descendants of mixed origin, later called the Bose Bastards. And it was this distinctive community whom the British ordered into the Petersburg concentration camp during the Boer War in 1901. The descendants of Kunrad de Bose did not identify themselves as black or white, or even coloured. They regarded themselves as a kind of separate people, different from anyone else in South Africa. With their family history, you can kind of see why. They lived separately from local black chieftains, and when the Debois clan was eventually thrown into the British-run concentration camp created in the town by mid-1901, these proud descendants of Kunrad Debois lived apart from all other inmates, refusing to leave their ox wagons, which were very much 
part of their clan narrative. To all intents and purposes, they were black, but they were also Boers. The de Boeses did not agree to fight for the British. They were too steeped in their grandfather's ways and shied away from involvement in the Boer War. But because they were black, the Boers didn't accept them either. They were isolated on the felt, yet they felt they were more representative of that ground than most people of any colour they met. As we know, by February 1902, there were many examples of black soldiers hired by the British who were then regarded as the most effective troops on the ground in the region. The Bushfeld Carboneers' murderous campaign had also led to many myths and rumours, and ironically, Breca Morant's escapades in the northern Transvaal had convinced many Boer women to seek shelter in the concentration camps as the lawless nature of the war escalated. However, the biggest threat to the inmates of this camp weren't the burly Du Boises or local Africans or even Breca Morant's bloodthirsty carboneers. It was disease. Petersburg and the nearby Sotbansburg area were full of Lofelders who arrived carrying various diseases into the camps. By July 1901, the 4,000 inmates were faced with a measles epidemic. Families that had returned to the camp from Irene near Pretoria brought the dreaded disease and children began dying again after a short period of improvements. The measles was a particularly bad type as Camp Dr. Franks explained, with many of the children developing double pneumonia. A British report published at the time says, Unfortunately, the mothers, believing that the worst was then over, allowed the children into the cold winds and dust storms which sprang up in July, contributing to the relapse of their offspring. The death rate from measles reached its peak in July 1901, and after camp officials managed to eradicate the disease, It returned in November 1901, but this time the inmates had actually built up immunity and the disease disappeared quickly. Then the visit of the ladies' committee in the same month provided more details about the camp and their lives. Remember the Fawcett Committee? Anyway, the report indicates the camp was clean and orderly by November and Lady Fawcett mentions the Du Bois clan saying they were led by a burly giant black man clearly of Kunrad de Bais origin then. The de Bases had started a school, which reportedly ran well. The Fawcett Commission said it included sewing and singing classes, and a number of workshops provided carpentry, bootmaking, brickmaking, as well as leathermaking, and it also had a blacksmith's shop. In December 1901, there were 1,700 head of cattle, 800 sheep, and 630 donkeys grazing around the camp, which was a perfect target for hungry Boer commandos. However, the general satisfaction with the camp may be measured by the number of men who then volunteered for the British forces. More than 140 Boers threw in their lot with the British as part of the National Scouts based in Petersburg by January 1902. But none came from the de Bois clan, as far as we know. Then, out of the blue, in January 24th, General Bayers attacked the camp in the early morning. The garrison, though, was alert, and Bayers was driven off surprisingly easily, which made military observers somewhat suspicious. You see, at the same time, 150 men from the camp made their escape and rejoined General Bayers' as commander. Yes, the superintendent and storekeeper were held captive for a few hours, but no one was badly hurt. And just before the attack, there'd been a number of desertions. Lord Kitchener, sitting in Pretoria, believed... The entire attack had been an inside job. Therefore, 
In retaliation, Kitchener decided to move the entire camp 430 miles into Natal. This was awkward for the camp authorities, for at first they could not find a camp in Natal that could readily absorb nearly 4,000 people. At the time, Lord Milner airily told the governor of Natal that this move was, in his words, a penal measure. For all the inmates needed, he said, was a healthy sight. We are not obliged to trouble about their comfort, Milner is supposed to have said. Privately, the colonial office in Britain was appalled by Milner's attitude and decided that this correspondence should remain confidential. Eventually, the Natal camp authorities identified a site near Colenso. Superintendent Tucker was sent down from Petersburg to supervise the removal into the open felt and the transfer started by mid-February 1902. All went except for one group that refused to move. Yes, of course, it was the Kunrad de Base clan, who remained where they were, along with a small unit of the National Scouts of Boer turncoats, just to keep an eye on this strange extended family. After the war, the de Base clan made their way back to their home in the town of Boestorp. The 11,000 hectares of land which comprises Boestorp, or Town is situated in the foothills of the remote Sotpansberg Mountains in the far northern Limpopo province. A hybrid community of 300 people who directly associate themselves with the base and a few thousand extended relatives continued to reside there. The debase people were somewhat out of place during apartheid, as you can imagine, and have been confronted with successive political dispensations over the years. They developed autonomous structures and procedures of local governments. They fit with the pre-1994 South African government was a little more comfortable, it appears, than with the new post-1994 democracy. Still, their history of interaction and intermarriage with surrounding communities means they don't really fit in with the African nationalist revisionist history narrative, nor with the Afrikaner nationalist narrative. Let's just say their story is truth about culture, and their uneasy relationship with outsiders persists along with their unshakable belief in what they believe is their moral right of ownership of the land upon which they reside. So, time to leave the Dubois family and rejoin the war in the Free State. You see, Lord Kitchener had made a few more important decisions by February 1902. He decided to redeploy some of his men from the Eastern Transvaal to the Free State to track and deal with that mercurial Boer general Christian de Wet. Kitchener had escalated what were known as the drives. These involved closing escape routes for mobile Boers by beefing up the lines of blockhouses, then ordering thousands of men in columns along into the fenced-off felt, and then squeezing the remaining Boer fighters into an ever-diminishing area so they could be mopped up. The vet could not help but notice. Towards the end of January 1902, Still more columns arrived, and a drive began, he notes in his book, Three Years' War. Things did not begin too well for de Wet in February. He had ordered Commandant Mears to move the two British guns they'd seized through the blockhouse line between Lindley and Bethlehem, and then push on to Winbach. But, unknown to both, the British were well aware of those orders. A force of the enemy had been waiting for him for three or four days at the farm of Fanny's home, one of the Liebenbergs flay. But before the sun had risen, a strong force under Colonel Bing had surrounded him and forced him to abandon the guns. Mears escaped, 
but the guns were lost, along with Captain Muller and 13 Boer commanders who surrendered. The British then formed a line extending from Harrismith, Bethlehem blockhouses in the east to the blockhouses between Frieda, Frankfurt and Heilbronn. And now the troops were advancing in close contact with each other, hoping thus to force us against one or other line of blockhouses. It was the classic drive that Lord Kitchener had designed, similar to a pattern used to drive wild animals into a cul-de-sac. General de Vette was again in some trouble. Nearer and nearer they came, until noon on February 5th we saw them to the east of Liebenberg's Flay. As de Vette watched, Boer heliogram operators from Blaukop sent a note that they had seen a cordon of English take up positions from Frankfurt to a spot between Bethlehem and Lindley. The noose was tightening. The intention of the enemy appeared to be to drive us against the Helbron Kronstadt blockhouses and the railway line. We had therefore to be prepared to fight our way through the blockhouses. Even the crafty Christian de Vett was worried, because he'd also been informed that these same blockhouses had been greatly strengthened. He mobilised his men, numbering close to 700, and they rode towards Slangfontein, west of Heilbronn. De Vett also sent an order to the other commandants of the smaller units, including Mens, Van der Merwe and Van Koller, telling them to meet him at Slangfontein the next day. For I hoped to break through at some point or other that night. Still nearer the enemy came, marching almost shoulder to shoulder, he wrote. He was in a tight spot again, but his order caused somewhat of a calamity for his commanders. Commandants Van Koller and Van der Merwe did not make it to Slangfontein. They managed to break through the English columns and cross the heilbronn frankfurt blockhouse line, but that's as far as they got. Then Feldkornet Staliart and Prinzlu failed to arrive. All were captured, with the exception of 28 men. But this misfortune was not due to the blockhouses. On the contrary, they were taken prisoners when they were attempting to hide themselves. Devet notes scornfully. More than a hundred of his men, though, were seized by the British. Lord Kitchener's escalation on the Free State felt appeared to be paying off. General Devet faced a conundrum. He still had the force of Commandant Mentz and parts of the commanders of Commandants Bester, Silius and Mears, along with more than 600 head of cattle. So, on the afternoon of the 6th of February, he marched onwards to a farm that was 12 miles from the Lindley-Kronstadt line of blockhouses, with a view to breaking out of the trap that night. As you will hear next week, his escapades that evening once again made newspaper headlines. But right now we must halt and take stock. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. And if you'd like to contact me, send an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. O bring me terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar my Sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door